All right, gang, welcome to the True Well Show. This is your host, Dave Littlejohn, in studio with my main man, Matt Dixon. And this, the greatest Tuesday you've had all week. It's we not are... the greatest Tuesday I've had all week. Okay. Well, apparently you crossed an international dateline. I have. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's a good start to the week. Why, David? Because the markets had another good day continue to climb higher um, i don't know if it's because of or in spite of itself right but uh, the markets have been recovering if we look at the 52 week range now uh 44 48 for the s p and we're at 43.78 right now which means we're what is that about 70 points from i mean it's 52 week high yeah, that's solid. We've know? been chugging along pretty steady. Yeah, I mean it's it's within a, about a one and a half percent of its high water mark, and uh, it's been a pretty solid year if you look at just 2023. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at 2022, it quickly wrecks the context of all of this, you know, mm -hmm. because we are still underwater from our high water mark prior to going into the 22 market price adjustment era. Yes. Yeah. AKA the bear market. And I will tell you, there are lots of ways to measure this thing. Right. Yeah. Oh, hey, check out my year to date returns. Yep. <laughs> well, it, it's that is always a, an element. This is something that I think we are, we're going to uncover more about this today. Like, how do you measure investment success? Mm -hmm. uh, because you need context, right? I mean, year to date, right, that, great. Great, right. but you know, when did you start? If you started on January first, huzzah, you feel great. That would be a good part to add to the show. What What are we talking about today, David? What's on your mind? Well, so every now and then I like to peel some layers back for our investors, but also rather than trying to be so uh, broad in in topic and what we cover, mm -hmm. get a little bit deeper into the weeds, mm -hmm. but in a way that I think our listeners can understand. I want to talk about how risk works in the investment landscape. And more specifically, because people have heard me talk about risk before, and I'm always joking. Like, Are we going to get a little more granular on, on well, today's Well, so risk is a four-letter word, right? It's also a, a word that is not necessarily well-defined because it has multiple meanings in finance. I want to talk about the, 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 for investors, the first question that everybody seems to get, which is, okay, what's your risk tolerance? Okay, and I want to give you guys some insight and a little bit more uh, understanding of why is this question always asked, and how you know, we're going to peel some layers back on what the risk tolerance is intended for, because it it doesn't mean like how much you're how how dangerous you're willing to be, although it doesn't not mean that. Mm -hmm. It means a lot more than that. And so here is this concept that is uh, seemingly simple, but is also quite complex because it doesn't make everything happen in finance, but it influences so many parts of the market. Right. And when you think about risk, that word, it doesn't always mean the same thing to the same person at all different times, right? Like right. as times change so can your viewpoint of your own personal risk. It right. doesn't have to be static. It's both objective and subjective. Mm -hmm. That is what makes this complicated, right? Right. And the definition itself is somewhat varied. And so, you know, well, what context are we talking about? 
And so today we're going to provide some context to risk tolerance. Mm-hmm. Okay, and if you are, this is this should be pretty broadly applicable. Like if you're out there listening, if you own or are thinking about owning investments, not just investments in the stock market, any investment, mm-hmm. whether it's real estate or going into a, a business venture or any of those other options out there that you know, commodity space you you, you, know, you want to become a rancher right this is going to be applicable to you now you may have to understand the context and then the application is unique to your circumstance but this stuff is applicable for every investor okay so so I think, there's some real value to be had here if you're listening. Uh, the first thing uh, that I want to get right out on the table is you're going to hear a lot of what we're talking about probably relative to uh, the investment markets, and, and it's more the mainstream traded investment markets. So you're talking about mutual funds, stocks, bonds, exchange-traded funds, things that you're going to find on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange or on an over-the-counter bulletin board, something like that. But the, the things that are relatively liquid and tradable in the stock market, that's mostly what we're talking about. But we will also tell you when we're kind of, hey, this is going to be applicable elsewhere too, because it, it really will apply. But just for context, so you guys understand, that's what Matt and I are going to be talking about today. right? So Matt, mm-hmm. let me ask you this question. Sure. You're a beginner investor. Let's say you have opened, uh, you, you, you come to work and you've got your 401k plan and you're getting started. Right. And you're trying to figure out, well, I'm going to take some money out of my paycheck and I'm going to put it into an investment account. Mm-hmm. Uh, and out of the gate, I've not really given you any other guidance on this. What happens? What do you need to do? Well, you need to determine how much you're going to contribute, first of all, right? Okay. So I'm going to look and say, I'm going to contribute 3%, or maybe I'm going to contribute 5%. 3% so. of what? Of whatever it is that I'm making each month. Okay, so three percent of your paycheck. Paycheck, right? And so I'm gonna look and say, hey, how much can I afford to put away? And that varies from person to person, and your, you know, personal beliefs on you know how much you figure you should invest and what you want your lifestyle to look like Mm -hmm. in the future. Um, But that would be where I would start. How much do I want to put in? And I'm gonna give a little bit more because just 401ks get the free money mm-hmm. okay if your employer offers a match and let's say the match is four percent or even five percent of your compensation then put in that yeah do because whatever you're you gotta get a the match, free, yeah and maybe there's some math to it the match is not always a dollar for dollar match but often it is it's right. usually something like i put in a dollar they put in a dollar up to a certain percentage of my paycheck so get the free money okay because it's free to you, right? And you're earning it in lots of different ways, but the, it's the it, the employer is willing to put that in on your behalf. So take advantage. Okay, mm-hmm. but that's a separate thing. That's just a low risk proposition, right? One of the <laughs> like free money is a good price. Yeah, one of the things that I did, and I'm just going to talk about my own personal yeah, experience on the radio. But when I first started contributing to my retirement account, I looked at the market as a whole. And I said, Hey, I think that this thing is a little overcooked. I think that the valuations are pretty high and I have a feeling that the market is going to probably crawl a little bit lower. So when I first established, you know, my new account, I said, you know what, I'm going to elect to contribute to 
segments of the market that I feel um, are a little more uh, resilient to a downturn in the economy. And so I customized my investments to that belief structure. It wasn't permanent, but I said for a season, I'm going to uh, play in a little bit different arena than most people. All right. Now, I'm going to take this back to the primary question here, which is when you did that, right? Mm -hmm. So for all of you listening out there, some of you are like, I don't know how to do that. That's okay. I'm not. This is not the show about how you learn that part of it. It is the show where we talk about well, why maybe, might maybe you why? do something. Yeah. And the first question is, Matt. Yeah. How much of a risk taker are you as an investor? I personally, I'm pretty risky. I'm willing to, you know, go after some investments that I think have a lot of upside, even though they might be trading at a really steep discount because there's fear involved in the company, for example. Let's, let's unpack this even further. Matt, yeah. do you want to buy investments that fail? I don't. Okay. Big shocker there, right? But are you willing to take the risk that your investment might fail? Yes. Okay. So now we have a starting point. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as a risk-free transaction. Even putting money in your mattress carries with it a risk, right? Right. There's risk. House fire. House fire, theft, uh, loss. You just forget you put it there. You die right? in your sleep and no one knows where the money was right. and then the mattress gets tossed. In and the of course, there's the, in the risk of inflation over time that your money is not productively working anywhere. And so you're gradually losing purchasing power to inflation mm -hmm. because that dollar is non-productive if it's out of circulation. Right. Okay. So there are risks. Okay, mm -hmm. including the risk that any investment has the potential to fail and not return your capital. Right. So there are lots of things you can do to manage that risk. We can discuss some of those today, but we're just talking about your willingness to take risk right now. That's the first question. Okay. So what is really buried in the question of how much risk are you willing to take as an investor? Mm -hmm. like, what's that question mean? Hmm. And it really depends on the person. I mean, what what does it mean to you? I'm going to tell you, I think that they're, for advisors, they are looking for a specific answer. Like when, when I ask that question, mm -hmm. first I'm allowing somebody to simply answer to give me their thoughts on it. Then I want to through a little bit more questioning, break down what does that really this, mean? What does it mean and why mm -hmm. do we care? And if you're curious, if I was to ask you right now, hey, what is your risk tolerance? You might say like, oh, I'm a high risk or low risk. Let's play a little game here. The little game is in your mind on a scale of one to 10, what kind of risk taker are you? Where one is burying it in the backyard and the treasure map is your secret. And 10 is nearest casino you can find and we're betting very poor odds, okay? <laughs> Somewhere in there between one and 10, where are you? And we're going to come back afterwards and we're going to unpack this concept, okay, and what it means and what, as an investor, we can learn from this risk assessment. But first, we got to get this break in. So stick around and we'll be right back. And again, keep that number in your mind. Somewhere between your, your between a 1 and a 10, it'll be a fun little exercise. And we're going to help you so that if you are a 401k investor or otherwise, that maybe this will get you a little step closer. We'll be right back. I'm Dave Littlejohn. 
and Matt Dixon. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 939 FM and 1240 KQEN. All right, we got the music and we are back in action. Hey, if you were just joining us, I'm Dave Littlejohn, joined in the studio today by Matt Dixon. And we are talking about risk tolerance and how risk gets treated in investing. If you want to get caught up, grab our podcast. If you're on the podcast now, you already know how to do this. But for those of you listening live, you can check out our webpage at littlejohnfs.com. Go under the Knowledge Center and you'll see this listed. You can also subscribe at any of your favorite podcast joints. So you go to Apple or Android or wherever you want to mm-hmm. do, and you can grab the podcast and you can follow along with us. So. Uh, for investors, we're trying to take a little deeper dive today into the specifics of risk and risk tolerance and what the word risk means. It gets thrown around a lot. And um, risk, if you are just to the layman, it's kind of that's like, oh, well, how scary is it? Right. Mm-hmm. High risk. That's where you get hurt somehow or worse. OK, it sort of has that meaning in an investment world, but it's we don't typically view risk. Uh, like in, in the simplest terms, what's the probability of a loss? Okay. Right. So like if you were to go buy like a treasury yield or something similar, a bank issued CD, you might not experience a whole lot of change in the value because the value was set when you bought it. Yeah. Yeah. There are, so we're, we're just we're going to we're going to try to dial in here. What I'm going to start with is risk. One of the biggest definitions of risk in the investment landscape is how volatile something is, how much it swings up and down. Now, risk of loss is part of that, right? If you are because because basically what happens is the more risk something has in it, the higher the probability of a failure, right? The higher the probability that you won't get your money back, the greater the return must be. Mm -hmm. Okay, let me say that again, just so you hear it. The higher the probability of not recovering your money, the more it must pay you. And it must pay you, right? Because if I have two investment opportunities, one of them, very high return, low risk. The other one, very high return, high risk. I will take the low risk investment, right? What idiot wouldn't? Yeah, <laughs> right? it's common if sense. I could, if I could take no risk and get a high return, that's better. So it's that's the way the world operates right if something is super low risk they don't have to pay you as well now we see this play out in real life all the time you know where we see it credit cards or how about car loans that's probably the most obvious one you have lousy credit okay one of two ways this happens one you have no credit established and so they don't know how risky you are and they're not willing to chance it Mm -hmm. or two you have validated that you're terrible about making payments on time and you may not pay at all, in which case you have terrible credit. And in order for somebody to be willing to let you borrow money from them, they're going to charge you a lot. Okay, That is the high interest auto loan. You have poor credit history. We will loan you money to buy this car because we can take the car back from you if you don't pay. And because if you do pay, we get paid enough to justify it. Okay. Mm-hmm versus the person with great credit. What happens to them? Yeah, you're not gonna pay nearly as much in interest. Yeah, and so you're a lower risk borrower, which means you get to pay less. That's the risk reward relationship flipped around. Now, as an investor, you're the one making, putting the money to work. And so how likely am I to get paid back? 
mm-hmm. the less likely I am. Or if it's not about whether or not I, if I get paid back, but how long before I get paid back, or maybe I get paid back, but some days my investment's really high value and other days it's really low value. And I have to be patient mm-hmm. because I can't, I don't want to sell it when it's low value, right? Cause I'm going to get stung for that. Well, now we've got ourselves a problem, don't we? Mm-hmm. This is volatility. The whipsaws up and down in the market. And so there are lots of things that you can do as an investor to reduce risk. Mm-hmm. Much of it comes through math, right? Yes, cursed math. It's my favorite. This is what diversification is for. Right. Diversification and proper management of correlation amongst the different assets. And if you don't know what that means, see me after class, right? But diversification, correlation, and allocation to different asset classes is a way to spread your risk across multiple areas of the market so that the probability that everything fails simultaneously drops. Okay. Now, what happens if everything fails simultaneously? Well, then there's a bigger institutional problem. Right. That's no longer the risk of one single investment. That's like when everything gets hit. Like the Federal mm-hmm. Reserve says, we're raising interest rates. Affects everybody. Yeah, right? no one is spared from yep. the, that, the trauma of that. Yeah, one of them is, you know, I'm in a boat in the ocean and the boat is rocking. The other one is, I'm in a boat in the ocean and the tide goes out. I feel like that's where we are currently, right? Like there's so many different things that are playing in effect on the market that we're having a really hard time judging. You know, is this a... Um, you know, a true bull market recovery, mm-hmm. or, you know, are we getting faked out and things aren't nearly as good as what they appear to be on paper right now? And there's a lot of things that are playing in effect. We still have inflation. We're still, you know, getting pressure from the Fed on rate hikes. The labor market is still strong. There's so many different things that are pushing and pulling that we don't know which direction it's going to go. Right. And, what what we're seeing is the market is having trouble pricing risk mm-hmm. to some extent. Some in some ways it doesn't have trouble at all, right? Like the right. bond market well, has a, has a pretty good understanding. The dividend paying stocks, hmm? the dividend paying stocks. We've seen that this year, right? Like the dividend stocks have actually been pretty slow to recover compared to the tech stocks, because I mean, why would you buy a dividend stock? Part of it is because you know, you believe in the company, but a lot of people are buying dividend stocks because they want the dividend. They want that return for buying the investment. But if the bond market is over here paying 5%, are those dividend stocks nearly as interesting? So far year to date, they haven't been. Yeah, there's just so much to it, isn't there? There is. Uh, I think the challenge that anybody has with the market is we have this tendency to want to say, because I have this pricing model that tells me this should be the value of something, therefore that is the value. That but yeah. The market, it turns out, doesn't, doesn't care. care what you no, think. No, it doesn't care. <laughs> it doesn't, and, and it, that's a that's a head scratcher. We'll for look people. at companies like Nvidia or Salesforce, right? And we've talked a little bit about this off air, but you go look at the the PE ratios, right? The price that you have to pay for a dollar of earnings on these companies. We've seen Nvidia. Over the course of this year, the, the the share price has just gone through the roof, and the price that you have to—I mean, do you even do you know off the top of your head what either of those two companies are trading at when it comes to their price 
so their Salesforce, the current PE ratio is 549.53. So $549 per $1 of earnings. Right. And yeah. for NVIDIA, uh, significantly lower. 219.25. But when you look at the average PE ratio across, you know, the S&P 500, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's probably around 18. $18 per $1 of let's, earnings. Let's look at for example, uh Apple, another established player mm -hmm. that's a huge Probably 30. 31.8. Yeah. Right. right. So you start looking at these metrics and it's like where has the money been going? It's been largely flowing into tech stocks with higher PE ratios in an environment where, you know, that's kind of hard to justify paying extremes on the PE ratio with the risk-free rate of return where it's at. This is interesting to me. Yeah. Well, there are lots, again, these all come back to pricing rationalizations, and that's right. the best way to describe this, it. it. Yeah, it's exactly. It's a rationalization. Where mm -hmm. you're saying someone's willing to pay more, yeah. they're, they're they're saying, "Hey, if I do the math this way, it implies the company should be valued this way." And there are lots of different pricing models out there, mm -hmm. but but this is where um, <laughs> I say things and and it 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 frustrates people um, because somebody's going to say this is non inclusive the way I describe it too. But the the market is a little bit like prom voting. Okay, it's a popularity contest. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so what you have is companies that are in the news that have flashy product, and they have the attention of people, and money is flowing in that direction. And so right. well, when money flow, when when more buyers are present than sellers, prices go up. I mean, I guess we can kind of form up that narrative. Look at all of the headline articles. It's all been around AI. It's all been around artificial intelligence, where it's going, how fast it's developing. And then we look and say, okay, well, who's the popular player in that arena? It's NVIDIA, right? Sure. And we, we see a huge surge in price. Yeah. So to kind of further your point. It's, and we're, we're, there's a lot of things that are getting layered in here to this conversation because, yes, what, what we've just identified is that a lot of the things that you would normally associate with measuring the value of a company are. Uh, like the weird thing about it, let's use Nvidia as an example, and let me be clear: we're not recommending Nvidia when we say this. Okay, um, we're not not recommending it. We're not recommending. It. We're just we're not touching it. Okay, um, I, I do have to disclose that uh, I I own some Nvidia, so like, uh, but uh, and I can also disclose that I reduced my position in it today. But that is not a recommendation or anything else. That had to do with my personal needs and how I wanted to run uh, an investment strategy personally. Well, the thing about NVIDIA that's interesting is it's not been a super high volatility stock. Until right? recently. Well, and even recently, it's, it's, it's had some ups and downs. Um, last year, it went down with everything else, and it went down a fair amount. But it's, it's been, if you look at the risk and reward capture recently, mm -hmm. it's gone up and up and up and up and up. Which, if you were to use that as your metric, you might it sort of The up and up and up metric. It will falsely imply that the stock is safer than you think because its pricing behavior has been pretty stable. Mm -hmm. Low volatility. And what did we say earlier? Risk is a measure of volatility. Okay, But it's also a measure of probability and, well, what could happen, mm -hmm. right? And so 
it doesn't it's more like just how well, much it's, probability and it's past what? performance too that's all we have is what's happened in the past well we still have its peers as well mm -hmm. okay and so right now if, if nvidia is leading the pack in terms of the technology and the chip architecture and the sales flow and where everything's going then you can see why it's a darling mm -hmm. but the question is should it be a hundred times more valuable than all of its peers right right and should you pay 227 dollars or whatever it is for one dollar of earnings when you could pay 31 dollars for a dollar of earnings from apple mm -hmm. right again i'm not making a recommendation i'm asking you a question how much should you have to put into an investment to get that money back out because if i were looking at nvidia with any other uh, metrics besides the prom court contest, mm -hmm. I would look at this and say it is very, very difficult to arrive at a point where this looks like a good investment. It looks like speculation yeah. with a tailwind. Is this an investment or is this a trend? Well, you know, right. th it's tough to yes. discern. And so that that is the question here. And the investment is could you could you come back in five years and and still be in better shape than you are today? Right. I mean, and that's not the only question, but that's a good question to start with. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, you never know. But if I had to choose between different horses right now, I'm, again, I'm so careful to not make recommendations because there's you know rules around this. But a super high PE stock that is in the news because it's got all of the attention right now versus something that has a much lower PE and is much more boring and has a business model that is proven, established, and isn't going anywhere. Okay, I just as an investor, I find myself thinking a little bit more Warren Buffett-like in a market that's had about a 20-something percent lift off of its market lows, mm -hmm. right? Since last October, we've had about a 20% increase in value since last October, and there's no hard and fast rule to this other than sometimes too fast is too fast, right? And then right. people get greedy and decide we, you know, we made a pretty good recovery. I'm going to take some profits here, and then the market can do a head fake from there. Yeah, I think people too often overlook timing, right? Because if you go back six months, and Nvidia is trading at multi-year lows. This is a completely different conversation. It this is it's not necessarily the company as much as it is the timing. Well, it's yeah, the market's a voting mechanism, mm -hmm. and right now, Nvidia's leading prom court. Right. Whereas, <laughs> whereas really, only yeah. really pretty and really popular. Right. right? Whereas uh, but eight maybe, months but ago, the personality yeah. might be iffy. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Man. Well, look. Uh, I, I, let's. We, we've talked a little bit of this. We talked about volatility. What I want to do for you guys as investors is get back to what's the practical application in your life. There's a key question that uh, I see, like one of the most common mistakes that I see with investors mm -hmm. around risk tolerance and how they set themselves up as investors in their in what they're doing. And we're going to unpack that, but I'm going to make you stick around. So. We'll be right back after this break, and I'm going to tell you what it was one of the most common mistakes that I see people make with their risk assessments. That and more. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. You got True Wealth on News Radio 939 FM and 1240 KQEN. Hey, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Show where 
I am hanging out, Dave Littlejohn, here in studio with... Matt Dixon. Matt. Yes. We are talking about risk tolerance for investors today. Okay. Okay. Uh, we've talked about the markets and how markets seem to not know how to deal with, or it doesn't know how to make heads or tails of the risks that are out there right now. There's just too many things pulling in too many different directions yeah. for it to figure itself out. Well, and I'm not convinced that the way we've always looked at data is going to be the solve for how mm -hmm. we discern in this market. But there are some things I think we can fall back on. More that fundamentals, will yeah. Help us, right? And so I said at the break, I want to talk about what is the, one of the things that I most frequently see. It's a mistake that investors make. Okay. Now, it may not be a mistake. It's a mistake in understanding. But it may still work out. It may not. It may be like, oh, well, it didn't hurt you. But people didn't get why they did it. Or they misunderstood and didn't need to do something. Mm -hmm. Okay. What do you think it is? Well, I'm not sure which one you're going to choose. But one of the mistakes that I've seen people do is they de-risk themselves too soon in their investments. Right? Maybe they hit age 40 and they take the risk off the table because they just can't stand it anymore. And they're worried about losing their principal, the amount that they put in. Um, that could be something that someone could make a mistake with. Um, but on the flip side of that, too, uh, you have to look at your age and say, you know, is the risk that I'm taking appropriate to where I'm at in my investments? So if you're really young, for example, you might be able to afford to take more risk compared to when you're 65 years old and you're getting ready to retire. Maybe it's appropriate at that time for you to take some risk off the table. Mm -hmm. I, you'd be covered lots of area there. The, the mistake that I most often see is that people assume because they were told, like the industry has told mm -hmm. them that, well, the older you get, the more conservative you need to be as an investor. Right, just okay. going through the motions without knowing what they're actually investing right. in. Right, and, and, yeah. and so it is, well, I better get more conservative because I'm getting older. And so we have seen an entire uh, generation or a, an iteration of mutual funds and financial products that have mm -hmm. come out that will automatically become more conservative toward a target date. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, oh, I'm going to retire at age 65. I better be a conservative investor by then because I can't afford to lose. And that's not necessarily always a good philosophy. Well, it's the, the, it's not necessarily tr accurate. Right. And it's not necessarily going to be the way to best manage your risk. And it's also not necessarily true. Okay. Mm -hmm. It is kind of true, meaning that it's it's pretty common that folks will save a nest egg, and then in retirement, they have to spend the nest egg, and they want it to last the rest of their life. And so when you start taking distributions, you may need to be more conservative sure. and have more stable But in the lead-up to it, you're saying that snowball effect, the compounding interest, sometimes you need to be able to let the snowball do its thing and get big enough so that there is a big enough chunk when you go to retire. Well, not just that. If you're going to retire at 62 to 65, it's not like you're dying the next year, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, you still arguably statistically have a you know, 15, 20 year lifespan or longer. Mm -hmm. So the Maybe money your time, is still yeah. need to, needs to continue to be productive so that it will continue to last. And so you don't have as much longevity risk. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Now, are there tools that can help someone try and frame up a picture of what things could look like? Nope, there's no tools. It's hmm. tough. Talk about leading the witness. I am. <laughs> it's, that's that's a not so subtle sale right there, isn't it? Oh, it's funny. Um, yeah, of course. There's great tools out there that I think uh, investors ought to consider as well. But uh, you know, generically. I, I'm just I'm not convinced that it's automatically a de-risk solution just because mm-hmm. you're getting older. I'm also not convinced that just because somebody's younger they should take on a lot of risk. There are there's probably a, a bit of a sweet spot mathematically. If you take too little risk uh, as an investor, it's almost pointless. Well, and we also got to differentiate between are we talking about retirement accounts or are we talking about savings? Because you can invest your savings. You know what I mean? Like, I think for this show, we're mainly talking about retirement accounts. But like what you're talking about, age and risk, it depends on what the money is being used for, if it's a retirement account or if it's savings that you're investing. Yeah, it, it's really your whole financial picture determines it. Because what your risk tolerance is most applicable for is distribution planning. Mm-hmm. That's the most that that's the thing that I, I believe it, it's most going to wag the dog is if you're taking money out, then you want the money to be there. Mm-hmm. And so you need at least a portion of that money to become more stable so that it's available. Right. Exactly. You, you, know, you don't want it at risk of going through a downward market cycle and then pulling the money out at the bottom of that cycle where it hurts you more. Mm-hmm. So you so if you're going to be taking distributions, you need to develop a distribution strategy that may include de-risking your investments to make that work some of it part of it or even all right yeah there are other ways to do that too you may be able to say you know i can afford to put three years worth of income in a savings account and then i can keep the rest of my investments invested because i got three years that i don't have to touch them because i got the money set aside right okay or here's another one that i see sometimes i see folks that get into their 70s or 80s and they say i'm never going to spend this money right and they go uh, you know, if I'm never going to spend the money and I've got I'm on you know pensions and other things and I don't I don't need to worry about it, then they say, you know, how should I invest? And it's literally, well, how do you want to invest? And some of it is even a well, how do you want it invested for your heirs to receive? It? Right. What so do you want your legacy looking, to look like? Yeah. Because well, then your your risk tolerance could go up because you're targeting a higher return. Correct. Yeah. And so it gives you a different set of options because your risk is relative to your circumstance and your need. And that big need is when do I need the money? Or do I need the money? Right. Yeah. And so what does that tell us about our our risk tolerance? It tells us that it's going to be somewhat dependent on the size of our account. Mm-hmm. It's going to be our age matters, but that's not what's really doing it. Our age is our proximity to distribution. Mm-hmm. Right now. Our, our our native risk tolerance of how much can we like how much adrenaline can we handle right how much of a whipsaw can we tolerate? I think it's the whole like can I sleep at night? That's piece. the one. Yeah. Right? The sleep at night index is that's probably the first one people think about, and it is real, right? Uh, you know, you can't. I don't think it's right. wise to buy a bunch of investments that you can't stick with because the volatility is going to bother you too much, and then you're going to find yourself. Basically, you'll, you'll, I mean, if it's going up, you're just going to be like, woohoo, it's going up. But if it goes down and you panic and you pull the money out because your risk tolerance was misaligned, 
then you're really going to harm yourself in that process. So I, I don't think it's a good idea to over-risk yourself if that's not where your native risk tolerance is. You just got to know that you may be choosing a slower, gentler pathway. It's going to take longer to get there. Right. And as, it, as an advisor, I'm looking at this and saying, you know, I also want my client to be happy because if the, the relationship's got to be good on both ends, right? Mm -hmm. Between both the client's viewpoint and if you're not happy, well, then you're going to come back and say, hey, you know, this is bothering me. So yep. I think finding that sweet spot is um, definitely an important piece of the puzzle. So how does one go about finding that sweet spot? Well, I see you put the headphones on, so I'm afraid <laughs> that's a lead-in question, David. <laughs> it's totally a lead-in question. I think that there is a way for investors to to figure out the sweet spot of where you need to be, and we're going to talk about throwing that. darts. But first, we got to take <laughs> a break. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Dave Littlejohn and Matt Dixon, and you got True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM and 12:40 KQEN. Hey gang, welcome back to the last segment of True Wealth today. Uh, I'm your host Dave Littlejohn, joined in studio with my main man Matt Dixon, and we've been having. Just a uh, a little bit more of an in depth session session today about investor risk tolerance. Right. Now, it's not intended to be a total nerd out deal here, but the reality is so much of investor success uh, outside of the actual investment selection and whether or not you pick big winners or not. Right. But so much of the success academically gets built on the foundation of understanding the right amount of risk. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I see a lot of investors that are kind of dismissive of this. And so I tend to beat this drum a little bit. Like, Matt, I mean, <laughs> I've probably driven you up the wall with this because I'm constantly going, there's got to be context. There's got to be context. Mm -hmm. What am I talking about? You're talking about, you know, risk, reward, and where we need to be, right? And we've talked, we've led into this, right? But I think where we're going with everything is to say, at the end of the day, you need to make a plan. And you need to know what it is that you're trying to achieve. And one of the things that I do with any client or prospect or whoever that comes through the door and wants to talk and we sit down and we look at things is I always start by showing a basic calculator. Um, and it's what do you have right now and what type of contributions might you make and what does that mean for your account in the future, given a hypothetical, you know, rate of return? And I always start with like four or five percent. And I say, okay, we're here today. What if you get four or five percent on average um, until this age? What does that look like? And then I also will I'll start changing my variables and what I'm inputting and saying, okay, well, what if we do better than that? What if we take on a little bit more risk? and get a little bit more return. What does that look like? And sometimes, you know, that four or five percent is adequate and people are like, you know what, that looks great. And to that I say, okay, well, you know, given the lifestyle you wanna live, if that works for you, perfect. But sometimes someone says, well, four or five percent isn't enough to get me where I wanna go. I need closer to eight or nine percent. How do we try and target that? Now, can we guarantee it? No. But we can at least try and set things up to target the type of return that you're looking for so that you can achieve the goals that you have in mind. 
And so I think the frame up is, is that making a personalized plan so that you can try and achieve the goals that you're looking to achieve in life. And if you need that type of help, you got to give us a call. (laughs) It's 541-375-0898. And maybe we can sit down and look at the numbers and say, you know, where do you want to be? What are your goals? And how do we get there? Right. All of this hinges on what you need. Exactly. Okay. And so that's the or what you thing want. About How about what you want? Well, OK. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, yeah. Forget uh, yeah. your needs. What do you want? Let's <laughs> well, make that it's, happen. It's it, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the whole point is your circumstances unique to you. There's this end goal. Mm-hmm. OK, out there. And a lot of the time when you're really young, you don't know what that is and you have lots of time. And so it's easy to default into investing at a higher risk because you can afford to. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't have that much money in the account le- relative to your life. And so, OK, I can afford to let it go up and down a little bit, because if I lose you know, lunch tomorrow, I'll keep working. I'm going to anyway. And so you can be very aggressive when you're young because you're not risking very much. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but the table stakes go up as your account grows with time. And so that that risk element starts to change and your time element starts to change. And as you get further down the path, you start to figure out what's the life I'm trying to design. Mm-hmm. And in order to get there, I think that's Matt's primary point is that yeah. you may discover that you don't need to take any more risk as an investor. You can be more conservative because you're on the right pathway to get where you're trying to be. But you may also discover that you have not taken on enough risk and the probability of you being successful is almost zero. Right. And therefore, the only way you can give yourself a shot, and it's not a guarantee, but at least you have a shot if you take a a more aggressive investment posture. Okay. And that's really what it comes down to. And so just like everything in life, there are seasons, right? And there are seasons where you can be more aggressive and there are seasons where it's probably not advisable to mm-hmm. be so aggressive and it's uniquely personal okay but that's the relationship and that's why risk is so much when are you taking the money out what volatility level are you willing to stomach how much money is actually at risk relative to the rest of the lifestyle you're trying to design relative to the other things in your life that you're taking risk or not taking risk and this is going to work across the board for not only stock market not for just your retirement plans but for your real estate portfolio again how you're running your business and and you know when you decide to retire and how much of a nest egg you're going to need and try to be sustainable and so forth all those things are going to be baked into that plan i feel this is why it's so important to have an advisor that you trust and mesh well with because sometimes as an investor if you're going at it by yourself um you might have a theory as to where the markets are and where things are going and you can get really excited and make a big decision where you know maybe that decision's the right one but it's always helpful to have an advisor or someone that you can bounce an idea off of and say hey you know maybe should we de-risk right now maybe you should um but maybe it's time to push more chips in and say now's a buying opportunity we need to put both feet in the water and get after things because this is an opportunity. Could be. Yeah, the shameless plug here, just think for a minute about some of the greatest athletes that you know. Mm-hmm. And they have coaches. Right. Right? Greatest golfers still have swing coaches. The swing coach isn't a better golfer than the golfer. Right. The swing coach has a different perspective, and they're able to help enhance 
what is going on. Oh, David, you and these analogies, they're always so spot on. (laughs) This is, I think, the benefit of having, and I've used this one before too, right? The same reason that we don't allow physicians to operate on their own family is because when you get too close to something, the emotions can compromise your decisions, okay? But one of the things that helps you to not get compromised in an otherwise difficult environment is training mm-hmm. and objectivity, right? So as investors, one of the ways we can help our investors is by being the coach and being more objective and being able to look at the circumstance independently from the emotions that you're experiencing. So I think there's a tremendous value there. Okay? Mm-hmm. And the other is so many people just don't get around to it. Yeah, and, and that really is the issue too, is that I had the best of intentions, but I didn't do it. And the cost of not doing it is higher than the cost of having somebody get it done for you. Right. So I think that's the real takeaway for me from an investment perspective uh, and why we still have a job and I, you know, we still yeah. have If clients. you're not going to move the bark mulch, call the person to move the bark mulch for you. Exactly. How do Ro- they rotate your tires, right? Yeah. How so. do they call the, the financial mechanic, as, as you might call it here? Well, um, uh, you can give us a shout, 541 541- Three seven five zero eight nine eight, or email you go us. online. Email us info at littlejohnfs.com. Just go to the webpage. Lots of ways to reach us. But hey, that's the music. We're out of town for now. Time for now. We got to run. Uh, until next time. Thanks for joining us. I'm David Littlejohn and Matt Dixon, and you've been listening to True Wealth on News Radio ninety three nine FM and twelve forty KQEN. The preceding program was paid for by Littlejohn Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.